Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. For the last time in our study of the book of Ephesians, we have begun a study of this book uh, almost a year ago. And just to give you some perspective, this is sermon number 30 uh, in our study, and we are just finishing chapter 2. I don't know what that means, except that it's sermon 30 of uh, we don't know how many so far. It has been so rich to plow through this, this text. And I, I'm going to confess with a great degree of sentimentality that, you know, at, at the, my position in ministry, my age, knowing that, you know, looking ahead at what I'm going to preach and what I get to preach before I enter into glory, that this is probably the only time left I'm going to be able to study Ephesians at this level. And I just feel like, you know, I want to grab every, every passage and just hold on as tight as I can. But then I remember I can read it tomorrow, so it's not too bad. Ephesians chapter 2. As you're well aware, we have embarked on this study of the book, the letter to the Ephesians from Paul over the past year. It seems that every single week, God has providentially ordained the passages we've been studying to the events of our world and to the occurrences in our lives and to the growth in our own church. I'm sure you're aware that We've been moving relatively slowly through these first two chapters. Obviously, I believe there's value in a slow, methodical approach to exposition, to expository preaching. Because by going slowly and looking at word by word and phrase by phrase and paragraph by paragraph and chapter by chapter, it allows us to see the details and the nuances of the argument of the author. In this case, it's the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a group in Asia Minor called the Ephesians. But there's also a great value in backing up and looking at the larger argument, the macro view of Ephesians. Consequently, we made a decision at the beginning of Ephesians based on our study several years ago of Romans, as you'll remember we did the same, by stopping after each chapter and looking back and doing a review of the whole chapter to grab the argument in in a big picture manner before moving on to the next chapter. And we finished chapter 2 a few weeks ago, and now we'll be looking at chapter 2 in retrospect. Please know, full disclosure, this is as much an exercise for me as it is for the church body. It's important to me and for me that I'm getting the, the whole of the argument and not just the details. It's an old adage about the forest and the trees, right? In this case, we want to make sure we're seeing both the big picture of Paul's argument, the forest, as, also, as well as the details of it, the individual trees. When we began Ephesians uh, almost a year ago, I-, I made note that many theologians believe the book breaks down neatly into two sections. I don't know if you remember that or not. Chapters 1 to 3, chapters 4 to 6. The claim is that the first three chapters are doctrine and the final three chapters are all practical application. In fact, I read this in a commentary that I love. I love this commentary. And I read this this week, quote, chapters one through three of Ephesians are focused more on theology or theology proper, while chapters four through six focus on the application of that theology, end quote. There's definitely some truth to that. But I think it's incomplete and inadequate to view Ephesians like that, doctrine and praxis. It all comes down to two moods of verbs. And if you 
Well, humor me just for a minute. We'll get a little geeky and grammatical. It's the indicative and the imperative. The indicative mood is things that indicate something. They state things. They, they are just statements of fact. The, uh, the imperative mood is a command. It's, it's, a, it's a telling you what to do. To be sure, the first three chapters are full of indicatives. And the last three chapters are stacked with imperatives. But that can lead us to, I think, the faulty conclusion that the first three chapters are doctrine without practice, and the last three chapters are practice without doctrine. I understand the sentiments of these assessments, but I've come to a very serious conclusion in looking at the first two chapters of Ephesians that it's dangerous to compartmentalize God's word to doctrine and practice, or head and heart, as some would say it. We should be very careful making any separation between head and heart, between thinking and living, between knowing and doing. Folks, there's no difference. All knowing must lead to doing. And all doing must be rooted in what we believe and what we know about the truth of Scripture. I hope you've been convinced as we've looked at these first three chapters, two chapters, that the indicatives that he makes, these statements of theological truth, these doctrinal statements are extremely practical. They have implication and application every single week. And as we'll start, note, starting in chapter 4, everything we're going to say about what you and I should do is rooted in what we know to be true about the gospel. Let me encourage you to never look at theological learning as a heady exercise that excludes the heart. All theology should have practical outlets in our thinking and in our doing. That brings us to our review of Ephesians chapter 2. I hope it comes to no surprise that, at no surprise to anyone, think about this really carefully, chapter 2 of Ephesians comes right after chapter 1. You've been studying, right? comes right after chapter 1. Now, I don't say that to be cute or clever. That's important because there were no chapter divisions in the original. Chapter 2 extends and expands what Paul has begun saying about the glories of salvation in chapter 1. In Ephesians 1, Paul provides a summary of Christ's rule and how God rules the creation and God rules the Christian through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's critical to look at chapter 1, flip back over there for a moment, chapter 1, verse 10. There's a critical clue that Paul's giving in his argument. He speaks of God summing up all things in Christ. Ephesians 1.10, speaking of the gospel with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. By, by saying that, he's saying all things should be thought of in reference to Christ. All life should be lived in reference to Christ. All of our thinking should be submitted to the rule and authority and power of Christ. He is summed up in all things. Not some things, but all things. So chapter 1 focused on what God does for a believer in and through his son, Jesus Christ. 
The chapter climaxes, interestingly enough, in the last verses, verses 20 to 23, in Jesus' resurrection, his exaltation for the benefit of the church. So as you open chapter 2, Paul transitions from general theology about the gospel, the glories of the heavenly gift of election and predestination and his sovereign choice to now saying, so how does that impact us individually? How will it impact us as a church? Don't miss the drama that exists in chapter 2. Perhaps the most dramatic drama, the most dramatic theological discourse in the entire Bible begins in chapter 2. It's astonishing because it's in response to the miraculous, to, to a miracle. Now, the Bible mentions multiple miracles. There are two big categories of miracles. There are miracles that happen in creation, like the dividing of the Red Sea, but there are also miracles that happen to people. And you can see this especially in the life of the Lord Jesus. The blind received their sight, the paralyzed walked again, the deaf were able to hear, the dumb were given the ability to speak, lepers were cleansed, deformed limbs were instantly restored to normalcy, demon-possessed people were relieved of their possession, delivered. Trump all of that by the fact that on a few occasions, Jesus raised the dead. Remember Jairus' daughter? Takes Peter, James, and John. He goes in, this dead girl. She's dead. The family's grieving. And he raises her from the dead. Remember Lazarus? One of my favorite moments in all of the King James Bible. This was several days after Lazarus is dead and Jesus has opened the tomb. And remember the King James? Surely he reeketh by now. He, he was dead. And he raised him from the dead. Take the grave clothes off of him. That's an amazing miracle. Can you think of a more amazing miracle than a man or a woman being raised from physical death? And Paul says, I can. It's miraculous. And his miracle is salvation. These miracles were rare, which made them stand out and get attention. And I think that somehow being around so many people who have been converted to Christianity, we forget and we miss the radical, supernatural miracle that we're Christians. Salvation is a miracle. More specifically, anyone who comes to believe the gospel personally experiences a supernatural miracle. And that's exactly where Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 2. So we're just going to break this down. Again, we're going to cover the whole chapter and we're going to go fast, but this is all review. You can go back and listen to the recordings if you want to drill down on any of these points. So we're looking at a theological overview of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin with the first section. It breaks down neatly into two sections. The first section is about our understanding of individual salvation, and the second is about our corporate salvation, being a part of the church, the effect of salvation individually, verses 1 to 10, the effect of salvation individually. 
Verses one to three, he tells us before salvation, we were spiritually dead. Now, we kind of climaxed our study of the, our overview of those miracles by cleansing and healing and demon possession, delivery. And I finished by saying perhaps the most radical and uh, phenomenal uh, illustration of Christ's miracles was that he raised the dead. Here we see Paul instructing us that in salvation, in faith, you and I have been raised from the dead. Verse 1, and you were dead. What does that mean? In our trespasses and sins. There's a little bit of a tension here that's going on in these verses. Because Paul says you were dead, and then in verses 2 and 3 goes on to tell us how we were alive. (laughs) What we were alive to. Even using the phrase in verse 3, you formerly lived. So what do you mean, Paul? We were dead and now we're alive. Well, listen to what he says. In which you formerly walked, in your trespasses and sins, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were dead. Now, before we talk about how we're strangely spiritual zombies and alive, how did we become dead spiritually? When our first parents fell in the garden, Genesis 2.17 says this, God said, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. You can eat from any other tree, but not that tree. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely, what? Die. But there's a problem. Adam and Eve ate, and they didn't die. So did God lie? Does the Bible err? No, 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 no. That's the death that this is talking about. They died spiritually, but they were very much alive in their own sinfulness. The details of the unbeliever's condition are clearly outlined. An unbeliever in his walking deadness is irrepressibly alive to sinful influences. I mean, look, at verse 2, he says, you were formerly walking or living according to the course of this world. That's a godless worldview. That without Christ, everyone defaults to thinking like the world thinks. And it's not that you're all unanimous or that the world is unanimous, but you think politically, you think scientifically, you think socially, you think racially, you think according to a worldview that's been handed to you by looking at what you approve and what you disapprove. That's what our default is. Also, we live according to a satanic agenda according to the prince of the power of the air, verse 2 says. Spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Disobedience is led in large influence by a satanic movement. Satan is alive and well, and he's working in the temptations. He's working in the influences of this world. It's not going to get better, folks. 
the prince of the power of the air. God has temporarily given authority and influence in this world to the devil. We're going to get to how he undoes that in a believer's life in chapter 6. But they walk according to the prince of the power of the air. Unbelievers do. Completely under his spell, as it were. And then he says also, according to an ungodly nature and mind. So according to a godless worldview, a satanic agenda, and an ungodly nature. Verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Comes from within us. Indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So not only does influence come on us from the world, not only does influence come on us, uh, among us from the devil, it also comes out from uh, inside us, from our own heart. That's triple doomed. That's how dead we are, from outside and from within inside. What's the conclusion? We were by nature, by the very Essence of who we are, children who will inherit God's anger, God's wrath, eternal condemnation, and eternal hell, his wrath, even as the rest. This is the way the world is going. Before salvation, we had an experience of spiritual death very much alive to the sinful influences of the world, but very much dead spiritually. What does that mean? Dead to God and his influence, dead to God and his word, dead to God and his body, the Lord Jesus Christ's body in the church, dead to God. But that leads us to what he tells us in verses Four to ten. Before salvation, we are spiritually dead. Because of salvation, we are spiritually alive. Spiritually alive. And he breaks this down between verses four and ten into four arguments. First of all, we're alive because of God's love. Alive because of God's love. By the way, this is more of an involved outline than normal because we're doing a whole chapter. So. Give me a little grace. Alive because of God's love. Verse 4, but God, you are dead, but just put those two together. You were dead, but God did something about that. Now, why would God do that? We find out we're alive. We're going to be made alive in verse 5. But we find the reason in verse 4. But God, and then there's a little parenthetical, being rich in mercy, wealthy in mercy. Now, this is important because he just told us we were children of wrath, right? Deserving wrath. Mercy is the opposite side of the coin is grace. Grace is giving us something we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding what we do deserve. We are children of wrath, connect that to, but God being rich in not giving us his wrath, being rich in mercy, inclined to be merciful. Why would he be merciful? That's a hand inside the glove of his love because of his great love with which he loved us. 
we studied this, I told you a little about, little about the original language. It's, it's really funny. It's, it, the English grabs it pretty well. Because of his great love with which he loved us. It seems repetitive, doesn't it? But it's repetitive on purpose. Because he's loving, but he chose to express his love and to give his mercy to a select, elect, predestined group of people. Now, before you freak out about that, how do you know you're elect? Because you believe. It's conditioned by belief. We'll get down to that in just a minute. Because of his great love with which he loved us. These two words, but God through Paul's quill, really indicate the Holy Spirit moving from our dreadful position in verses 1 to 3 to our disposition of experience and the disposition of God in verses 4 and following. He loved us. Listen, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I have The older I get, the more I have moments of thinking about my salvation, and I, I just often say, why would God save me? And I don't know. I don't know. Except that he is, is loving, and he expresses that love toward those who would believe we're alive because of his love, but there's a little bit more expansive understanding of that. Secondly, we're alive because of God's nature. Now we're going to pick up verse 4 and connect it to verses 5 and 6. So he's rich in mercy. He has great love with which he loves. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. The first Verb doesn't show up in this in Ephesians 2 until verse 5. So you can connect verse 4. But God made us alive. That's the, that's the core of the sentence, the subject and the verb. God made us alive. That's miraculous. He raised the dead spiritually, and that is equally as miraculous as him raising Jairus' daughter or Lazarus. We were dead in our transgressions, in our sin, because of our sin. He made us alive together with Christ. Now he turns the coin of mercy over to see grace. By grace you've been saved. He saved you from his wrath and give you, didn't give you what you deserved. And now he gave you what, he, what you did not deserve, what we could never earn or deserve. By grace we've been saved. Saved from what? His wrath in verse 3. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's done positionally right now. It will be done physically in heaven. In other words, we are saved due to the the astonishing disposition of God's nature. Mercy in verse 4. Love in verse 4. Grace in verse 5. What a God. What a God. We're alive because, (laughs) what does chapter 1 say? Because of the kind, the kind intention of his will. He's gracious and kind. He's merciful and loving. That's why anyone is spiritually resurrected. 
Thirdly, we're alive because of God's purpose. So that, that's a purpose clause, so that in the ages to come, verse 7, God might show, you could say show off, display, put on public viewing, so that in ages to come, he might show the surpassing wealth or riches of this grace he's just talked about in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. His purpose was to show the universe. That includes the believers, unbelievers, angels, and demons to show that he is kind and gracious, surpassingly, overwhelmingly rich in grace toward us in Christ because of Christ. He loves us because he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. He can love us because he imputed our sin to Christ on the cross so that it's paid for. That's his purpose, to show forever the glories of his nature in our salvation. You are a trophy of God's grace if you're a Christian. You are a trophy that he forever will hold up and say, Look what I did, and look what I'm like. I saved her. I saved him. Which leads us last in this looking at our individual salvation. We're alive because of God's workmanship. Alive because he did something. This, this is just, I remember when we studied this, it's just hard to put your mind around for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, let's stop right there. How do you know? We've been looking at chapter 1, election and predestination and God's purpose and God's choosing. And you say, well, how can I know if I'm elect? By grace you've been saved through faith, through believing. Only the elect will believe. And if you believe, you are elect. By grace... You have been saved. This goes all the way back to verse 3 from God's wrath. Saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And we took note when we studied this passage to say the it there is faith. Faith is the gift of God. No one will believe unless God makes them believe. That should encourage you. I've talked to so many folks. Goodness, I've, I remember as a young man wondering, man, I... I wonder if I'm elect. Oh, I hope, I hope I'm elect. How, how can I be elect? Then you realize, well, wait a minute, that's all God, so what can I do? No. Will you believe? Will you believe the gospel? That's faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So if you will believe, it's evidence of predestination and election. He goes on to qualify that, verse 9, not as a result of effort or works. You know why? So no one would boast. If you would say, I'm in because of me, you would brag about that. We've already learned that God is going to show off and rightfully brag about his creation in Christ of believers for the rest of eternity. Are we going to compete with God to say, well, everybody else got in by grace through faith, but not me. I worked myself here. You will never do enough 
to inherit eternal life. You will never do enough to please God and become accepted. Now, verse 10 is critical. For we are his poema, his workmanship, his poems, his artisanship, his, his craftsmanship, his masterpiece is the word, word, what it means. We are his masterpieces created in Christ Jesus. So when you come to Christ, he creates a new you, perfectly fitted for his own purpose. We'll see how you're fitted together with other people in, in, in just a few minutes. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is sanctification. Paul slips from justification to sanctification in, in, seamlessly in these, these uh, three verses. His point is simple. No one saved as a, is real, ever saved as a result of their own effort or works. At the same time, those who are saved should walk in works. What did James say? Faith without works is, it's not real, it's dead. We just learned in Sunday school, in the last hour, Dale was saying, becoming, sanctification is becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth, end quote. You walk in the works. He's predestined you to walk in. So here's a fun exercise. Anytime you obey today, tomorrow, tonight, just stop and smile and say, God planned for me to obey this way in all eternity so that he could give pleasure and I could remember that he's working in my life right now. It's not passive though. What does Philippians chapter two say? Work out your salvation for us, God who is at work within you. His workmanship. You are the very signature of God in your being created in his image. And you are the specific, specific signature in that he created you in Christ as his own craftsmanship, his own masterpiece for sanctification, for good works, for obeying. Those are the effects of our salvation individually. From death to life is miraculous, is it not? It, it, it's, it's supernatural. It's not something we can do. Don't ever, please don't ever overlook that if you believe the gospel, it is miraculous that you're alive and not dead. Secondly, let's look at the effect of salvation corporately. Paul's just genius in his, his writing, obviously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which you expect that. But he, is, uh, he moves from the individual miracle of being saved to the corporate miracle of existing with others with whom we should disagree in the body. The body of Christ and being in the church, the local church, is also a miracle of God's grace. The effect of salvation corporally, not only is individual salvation a work of God's miraculous power, but our inclusion individually in the body of Christ corporally is miraculous as well. 
I mean, think about it. Being saved from sin, eternal wrath, becoming a friend of God as a saved individual is undeniably miraculous. But knowing that could make it easy to miss another miraculous implication of salvation, and that is this. To be brought together in a common fellowship with others who are fundamentally different than we are is a work of God. Salvation is indeed miraculous individually, but salvation is also miraculous corporately. Remember, Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastoring these people at Ephesus. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Paul's going to call the church the household of God at the end of this chapter, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We said in our last study that ecclesiology is the integrating doctrine of all Christianity. What I mean by that is the doctrine of the church upholds all that we would believe and how we would be discipled, how we would be trained, how we would be counseled, how we would encourage sanctification. It happens in the church, not by ourselves. In a real sense, all other doctrines are regulated by the church's handling of the truth. T- to be honest, that's why we take membership very seriously at Mission Road. And I encourage you, if you're not a member, to, to consider that. That, that. That's why we're very serious about our commitment that we make to be members of, of the church. That's why we're serious about care groups. That's why we do church discipline is we are mediating God's love for his people by having our fellowship called Mission Road Bible Church. So let's drill down into that a little bit more. There are three expressions of that. First of all, present unity is valued by remembering past disunity. You would say, well, we're all sitting together. That's not a big deal. It's not a big deal unless you understand the disunity that God saved us from. And we might not understand that from a Jew-Gentile perspective, but we can from other perspectives. Verse 11, therefore, based on the fact that you've been saved individually, it's a miracle that you've come to Christ, that you're in Christ as an individual. Therefore, remember that formerly you, who are you talking about? The Gentiles in the flesh who are called, and we talked about this when we studied this, the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. These were names that both groups threw at each other as terms of derision. Well, there's those people who are circumcised. There's those people who are uncircumcised. So they designated each other, the clean and the unclean, the weird and the not weird, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. He just reminds us of what he says in Romans, that it's just surgery. Remember that, at, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Just reverse engineer that. No hope without God in the world is a hopeless condition indeed. 
And those were the Gentiles who were outside of being Jewish. He says in verse 11, remember the dilemma of your alienation. And then in verse 12, remember the cause of your alienation. You were separate from Christ. The consequence of your alienation, you were excluded from all the blessings, the commonwealth of Israel. They had the temple, the temple worship. They had the law of God. They had uh, the, the, the fellowship of, of, of each other and the sacrificial system. You were excluded from that. And remember the remedy for alienation. The remedy from, for alienation is finding hope from God in the world because of the covenants, the promises of promise. This, it's an interesting phrase, the covenants of promise. The promises about promise. The contracts about God bringing a solution to our dismal spiritual condition. So as Gentiles, and frankly, most of us are, are Gentiles. If you're not, praise God for you being included in the commonwealth of Israel, and I hope that that led you to your Messiah. But those of us who are Gentiles, which is largely our church, we need to remember that we are being unified in a universal body, Christ's larger, larger body outside of just our little local church, with people who are also Jews and Gentiles. Remember what it was like to be outside of the blessing of being Jewish. Secondly, remember that disunified enemies become a unified assembly. Oh, this is precious. But now, you were alienated, but verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, because of the gospel, you who were formerly off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Gentiles who were excluded from all the blessings of being Jewish and having access to Yahweh God, who would give them a Messiah, we have been brought near by the Jewish Messiah, by God himself. In the blood of Christ, his death on the cross, brought near being far off. And it wasn't abstract, for he himself, verse 14, is our peace. He didn't just give peace, he is our peace. Then he gives this architectural illustration, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Remember in the temple, there was the wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the, from the places that the Jews could go. The court of the men, the court of the women, you had the, the Holy of Holies. They, they, they couldn't see any of that. They could come, watch this, only so close. But they couldn't come as close as the Jews. And Paul says in the gospel, God through Christ obliterated and demolished that dividing wall. How? Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, being the enemy nature between Jew and Gentiles. Oh, you can come here so far, but don't come inside this wall. which is the law of the commandments contained the ordinances. One of the things that divided them was, I think this is speaking about the silly ordinances that they would elevate to, to high-end practices of worship. Um, they would take circumcision or, or washings or um, uh, certain festivals and days and say, we're special because we do these. They, 
they didn't see them from God himself. So that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, one new humanity. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but now Christian. To God, all his children, through the cross, there's the means, by having put to death the enmity. This is incredible. The execution of Jesus on the cross brought peace with believers in God, but it also brought peace with people who would normally not agree. Look at how he levels the field in verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to you, to those who were near. For through him, we both, the far and the near, have our access in one spirit to the Father. Notice that the entire Trinity shows up in verse 18. And Paul goes back to to grab what God has promised about bringing people who are far near and people who are near, near to him. Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah 57. So what does this do? Let's review. We say it over and over. You'll you'll hear it again, okay? The Jews and Gentiles had a hateful aversion to each other. Different diets, different calendars, different holidays, different weekends, different ways they dress, different languages, different places of worship, different ways their children's play, different school and education, different neighborhoods, different places they could each shop, different greetings, different goodbyes. They were different in every imaginable way. And the Gentiles had been oppressing and persecuting the Jews so much, though, that eight years from the writing of Ephesians, Rome would come and destroy the temple and take captive thousands of Jews, hundreds of thousands of Jews back to Rome You see that carved in the Arch of Titus in Rome. They hated each other. He says, you're all together now. You've been brought near because of Christ. So we should be careful to think through the implications of worshiping and serving with others with whom we have disagreements and differences. Politically, Racially, socially, age-wise, it is tragic when division invades the church. As we come together in the body of Christ, we may not have a tension between Jew and Gentile, but our opinions about non-biblical issues should be irrelevant in light of our common passion for the Lord Jesus. You may not be struggling with the challenge of worshiping and serving next to a believing Jew as a Gentile, or worshiping and serving next to a believing Gentile as a Jewish believer, but do you ever feel antagonism toward one another, another believer rather, who doesn't share your political opinions, your scientific opinions, your social opinions, your policy opinions, your opinions about the government, Government control, your opinions about liberties, your opinions about masks and vaccines. Jesus paid for our unity with his own precious 
And we may not be experiencing Jew and Gentile division, but we are experiencing a whole host of extra-biblical divisions that could truly divide Christ's church. Which brings him to the end. Salvation creates a new corporate dwelling of God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. It's not the so-called circumcision, so-called uncircumcision, not the clean and the unclean, not the, the weird and not weird. You're, you're, all, you're a one. You're, you're, no, you're not strangers to each other, not aliens to each other. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household. You're siblings. Brothers and sisters, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being, Christ Jesus being in the cornerstone, I think that's the foundation of the, the prophets in the Old Testament, the uh, apostles in the New Testament, the entirely of Scripture, and whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What is this? I told you a few minutes ago that we are Christ's workmanship. He makes a poem out of us, a craftsmanship, an, an artistry, a masterpiece out of each person. But we're all shaped individually. This idea of being fit together, I gave you an illustration a few weeks ago. It's like building a fireplace. And I saw a guy do this one time where he had a pile of rocks that were all jagged and, and didn't look like much. And over the course of hours, he put these rocks together and fitted them together in a place that in the end looked majestic and like they'd been fitted for each other. That's what God is doing by fitting Jew and Gentile, people who disagree about masks and vaccine, people who disagree about liberties, together in the church. Remember, if you're at the Royals game or you're a Chiefs game, a home run is hit or a touchdown is scored, everyone cheers, but before you start cheering, you look to the person on your right and your left, you're there by yourself for some reason, you don't know these people, and you say, can I, can I get your, are you a Democrat or Republican? Have you been vaccinated? No, your common loyalty to a common prize makes differences instantly disappear in the shadows. That's this. Look, we can disagree and talk about vaccines and, and masks and, and whether you should uh, uh, enjoy one liberty or not. That, that, that's, that's a healthy discussion to have, but never to the point of division. That's what he's saying. And you know what, folks? <laughs> if we do that, it's miraculous. John 13 Jesus said, they will know you belong to me when you love one another. What do we do with this? Let me ask you two questions. Do you see the miraculous work of God in your individual salvation? Do you see it? Do you understand? It is supernaturally miraculous if you believe the gospel. You didn't come to that because of your own ingenuity. God made you believe. It, faith, is the gift of God. And secondly, do you treasure the body of Christ 
this body of Christ as a supernatural miracle that we're together and that we worship together and that we love and serve together. And do you see that as genuinely miraculous? So much so that you will preserve and protect unity as one of your highest priorities. Because that's what he's going to tell us to do in chapter 4. The book of Ephesians calls us to know what God thinks so we know how to live and calls us to root our living in what we know. These are eminently practical issues. And I pray that what we know about our salvation individually and what we know about our corporate relationship with each other drives us to action. And we can do the good works that God has prepared beforehand so we walk in them. Father, grace us with the ability to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.